Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of Middle Market Growth Magazine, and I'm here today with Bob Ryan of Shields Manili and Keith Gowdy of Vantage Leadership Consulting. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. So I have a number of questions for you both about hiring and retention in private equity, but before we jump into those, I'd like for each of you to give a, a quick overview of, of your firms. Sure. Bob Ryan here. Uh, I'm a partner at Shields Manili Partners. Um, among other things, uh, our key focus is coaching and advising C-level executives, maybe one level below, that are in transition, either because they're, they've been let go, uh, end of a contract, perhaps uh, an event of a private equity firm, and it's, they're trying to move on to their next thing, or maybe they're finished with their career journey and trying to figure out what to do next. Great. And Keith here. I'm the managing partner of Vantage, and we are in the business of helping our clients identify and uh, develop leaders. So we do a lot of executive assessment, uh, executive coaching, team coaching. So that's, that's the space we play in. At the time of this taping, we are nearing the end of the first quarter of 2019. And based on the year so far, what are the private equity hiring trends that, that you're seeing, Bob? Private equity, of course, has been a very popular destination for our clients for quite some time. And I would say that things haven't really slowed down. While there are um, fewer transactions going on out there, there seems to still be churn. Of our clients, I would say probably 20% are going into private equity. And that has stayed steady for about the last five years or so. Almost every one of our clients that comes into our business, into our transition uh, program, is interested in getting into the private equity world. But in fact, mm. after we do assessments, we, we figure only one in five is suited for that world. Interesting. And we can, we can talk about why that is if yeah. you like. Yeah. And what about, what about you, Keith? What are, your, what are you seeing in terms of private equity hiring? Agree with Bob, and you know it's it's funny in that space. You know, so many folks it's hiring, and they're not experiencing a lot of turnover. Right, it's a very attractive, you know, um, industry to be in. Mm-hmm. You know, to work for a private private equity organization. It's a, it's kind of a sexy thing if you think <laughs> about it, because uh, maybe your our the average age of our client is fifty two, and uh, and so the fact uh, the idea of going someplace uh, for two to five years and then having an event where there's a nice payout is is quite attractive to them. And as I mentioned, it's just not for everybody mm-hmm. though. Yeah, let's dig into that a little bit more. You said sure. one in five is, is what you find is private equity yeah. is a good fit for. Why is that? Well, there's a few things that, uh, that are really important. Uh, one is they still have to have the fire in the belly. It, it is a lot of work. It's very intense. The second thing is some of our clients come from large firms where they haven't really had to roll up their sleeves, even though they might say they have. Mm-hmm. They haven't really rolled up their sleeves in a while. In a private equity firm, on the same day, you could be meeting with a large strategic customer and then schlepping boxes in the warehouse later that day because everybody has to do everything. The other thing is you're not going to have a big staff. And, and so if you're the CFO, you're going to be doing some accounting. And that's just not for everybody. So you kind of come in with a mindset of wanting to be a jack of all trades in a sense. They, they have to have that mindset. They might think they have that mindset, but they, uh, you can tell that it isn't for everybody. And, you know, as someone is trying to come into private equity or, or looking for a position in this industry, are there strategies unique to this market that an applicant should be keeping in mind? 
Well, definitely. There's still uh, private equity firms will will still use recruiters to some extent, but then you're probably going to have to also take an approach where you're going directly to the PE firm themselves, mm-hmm. because some portfolio firms are uh, some of their portfolio firms are quite small and can't afford to go and spend a hundred thousand dollars or one hundred fifty thousand dollars to find a CEO. They will they will have to go directly to that firm if they're interested. Now some private equity firms will actually go out and look for CEOs on their own and uh, and maybe even there's some that are CEO forward or first where they will hire the CEO before they've actually bought the portfolio company <laughs> look and look for that uh, that person to help them determine which companies to buy. That is a dream come true for somebody because you're there right from the beginning and uh, and you would be employed so to speak although maybe not with a huge salary working for the operation of the of the private equity firm until you actually and this could take 6 months to a year find the right company to buy and then you become the CEO of that company anything to add there Keith well i imagine it's a, it's kind of a hard industry or network to break into and then once you're in it and you're connected you have a little easier time navigating if you're looking for work well and that's one reason why our firm exists because we have 4,000 private equity firms in our database and, and we can line up the, uh, the right talent to the right private equity firm and then the magic has to happen after that. They have to do most of the work, but at least we can introduce them. That's, that is a way to do that. Another way is to work backwards, uh, figure out what's the company, what's the business I want to be in. And by the way, if you're, um, if you're looking to get into private equity, they're not looking for you to have a stretch assignment. They're looking for a new world. They, they're looking for expertise in huh, a particular okay. area. So you can figure out where are the companies that are doing that and, and try to follow it back to the private equity firm that owns them. Another strategy um, backwards from using a recruiter. I also get the sense that there's, if you're joining a, a private equity organization you know, to, to take on a leadership role, I see this when people go from big companies to small companies, you have to kind of get used to there's nowhere to hide. You're, the, there's a sort of a different scrutiny that might exist, and I imagine that's a pressure point you probably, you probably yeah. stress with the people who are like, that, that's are you right. sure you want to do yeah. this? If, um, that's right. Uh, there are private equity firms that are going to want a daily call, and there are some that are more hands-off until things may start to go bad. Yeah. You've got to be ready to do that, and if you have been the CEO or CFO especially of a large company, you might not be used to that. And because you're usually the person doing that, uh, but now you could have somebody in your shorts. That's, uh, it's not unusual. You made an interesting comment when we spoke a couple weeks ago in advance of the podcast about, um, I believe you said gray hair really can be an asset. And you touched on that a little bit with your point about expertise, but wondered if you could this flesh that out a one, little more. Katie, this is one place where it's good to have a little gray hair. Because they are not looking for somebody that's going to work for them for 30 years and then retire. They're looking for somebody that has expertise, that can start right away, that can that might already have contacts in that industry, that, and that doesn't come with somebody that's just right out of college. The private equity firm itself usually has a lot of really young people. Yeah. But they are looking for talent that's very experienced, and uh, the men and women that go into portfolio companies... Are, uh, are not there for training, they're or to be trained. They're there 
so that they can uh, start working right away. And you also told me previously that there's some similarities between private equity and the gig economy. Can you talk a little bit about that connection? And, and those aren't things you would necessarily associate sure. together. Sure. Well, it, it's not going to be longer than five years in most cases. Mm -hmm. uh, the average is three. Uh, that the private equity firm is going to own this firm and then either sell it to another private equity firm or to a strategic buyer. So you're going to be done. And then you're going to decide on uh, whether you're going to carry on in private equity or do something completely different. So it is like that gig working uh, working arrangement. And with that in mind, you know, does that make retention less of a concern? I think a lot of companies overall right now are thinking about how they retain employees in, in this labor market. Is that less of a concern given that these are... Not usually spins? a big concern in private equity because you're there until an event happens mm -hmm. and you're not going to get the, the payout unless you stay to the end of the event. However, what we have seen is that Things have changed on how you attract the talent to private equity. It used to be that the salaries were low and the payout was mm -hmm. high. You used to also have to write up to a third of your net worth of a check to, to actually play in the game. And that's changed because what private equity firms or what many private equity firms have found is that they weren't getting the right talent because people still would like to have uh, an income, maybe not what they were used to before. So we've seen salaries go up, uh, base salaries go up significantly, and now there's bonuses and there's a payout. And the, the idea of writing that check has now become optional. What it does is it allows you to buy more equity. There are still some firms that want you to write that check mm -hmm. and have some skin in the game, but uh, more and more often now we're seeing it be optional. I was just talking to someone who just retired from as a senior officer at a Fortune 500 company, and he was a little surprised to know that if he went into private equity, he could maybe make twice what he was making as you know as the previous, and he was very well compensated. Sort of on a similar note, you know, there's been a lot of talk about millennials entering the workforce. You know, years ago, as we were just starting to to come on board, and then now a younger generation, Gen Z, is coming in. How are companies making themselves appealing to those younger generations? Because I imagine a lot of what we read is that money isn't enough. That's not the whole picture. So Keith, curious your, about your yeah, perspective you know, there. Yeah, you need, you know, money has to be good enough so it's not a, a negative factor. Sure. Right? But I think organizations are doing a lot of things to make sure that the environment that people are going to work in is more uh, collaborative, social, and enjoyable. Hmm. Right. So it seems to be a lot about breaking down silos, connection, uh, creating a sense of community, uh, connecting um, millennials and post-millennials to the, to the purpose of the organization. And uh, to some extent, I think pro-social causes, but I, you know, there, there, are, there are caveats there. Um, so those, those are some of the things um, that we're seeing. Now, when we, we have roundtable events in our, our firm and when we bring in people, you know, young folks coming out of B-school or what we hear more from them is not so much we want to work for a company that wants to change the world or, or save the planet, but we, they want to know, they want, they want to be inspired by their supervisors, um, and they use that language, and they want to know how what they do makes a difference for the organization. Uh, but I, I think, and we've talked about this before, the, the idea of for-profit and for-purpose becomes sort of the kind of a matrix of it, you know, that becomes much more kind of front and center for millennials. So more and more you hear organizations talking about the sense of purpose that their organization represents, the role 
the purpose it serves in society. Surprisingly, we have found that many of our clients still aren't very good at their sort of weaving that into their employment brand in terms of, you know, energy companies. You know, they, I, they tend to underutilize the opportunity to sort of say, look, we're creating a renewable, sustainable future and we're going to power, you know, the innovation and change for the next hundred years. So I, I think those messages are there for for you know, really, really reinforcing in a different way. So it's almost like they're needing to articulate their stories better in a way that's they have to get better storytelling. Yeah, it's true for a lot of people. That's huh. right. You need a you, you need to think about your EVP, your employee employee value proposition, right. uh, and articulate that very clearly, and not just to the people that you're trying to attract, but to the people that are already in your company to help retain that. And you're going to get people, young millennials coming into the organization asking the CEO, what's the vision? What's your vision? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why are you here? And and why should I want to be part of that? Which is a little bit different than when Keith and I were hired. And it seems like we're hearing more and more about a demand for a collaborative work culture over maybe a more traditional siloed environment. How are C-suite executives responding to those demands and are they effectively changing the way that their organizations operate to, to be more appealing in that way? Well, I could respond like a real consultant, Katie, it depends. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. I was just working with a, a client in Las Vegas of all places and they have a, this software company, they have a CEO telling um, their organ. they just read Team of Teams. Uh, you know, this book on the Agile organization. Mm-hmm. And, and he was telling all the senior leaders in the organization, um, be more agile, operate like the lesson in team of teams. Don't ask for permission um, from your supervisors. And they're, they're just trying to get over this legacy they have of operating in, in silos. And in a way, the, the CEO is serving as almost a provocateur, hmm. right? Don't, for example, one of the things he said is stop thinking so globally. You know, I want to see teams come together on micro initiatives, take swift action, get a result or fail, and then move forward. And, you know, you can see that this is this is profound culture change for an organization like that. In other organizations, it's much more, you know, senior management plays a role in the existence of silos. So you have to, as you've mm-hmm. said, Bob, you know, have to kind of, what are the assumptions that senior managers need to look at in terms of what they're doing to contributing to a culture of silos and, and these sorts of things. Right. The culture of the organization starts at the top. But what's really interesting now is the top has to listen to the bottom before they actually create that, that culture. And then it needs to cascade down. And then the most important person after that is the supervisory level, that level that is managing the people that are coming into the organization because they are the point of leverage. So while you might have uh, five uh, senior executives, they have to be aligned, but they really have to align the people that report to them then down through the organization to that, uh, to the EVP that we talked about a second ago, but also to the purpose of the company, the values, and why are we here? I was just re- recently reviewing a case study of what happened at Nike. You know, they had the CEOs right, called out for some of the things that were happening in the organization, and they redefined their values and leadership competencies and they started by going out to the frontline employees and supervisors to define what those things are. Yeah. Not only to create a more inclusive culture, but I think to begin to break down some of the old norms and, and silos that might have existed. One of my favorite experiences of uh, my corporate career was when we were moving 
our facility from middle part of Illinois to Chicago. So we had to choose furniture, among other things. And I looked around at the people that were choosing the furniture, and we were all like 50 plus. And, <laughs> and so uh, I, I made the suggestion that we bring along a couple of millennials. And we did. And we went to the furniture mart here in Chicago at, at the merchandise mart. And I just said to them, go, sit, try everything you like, and tell us what you like. And we were really surprised. Uh, they, they wanted workstations with very low walls. We would have never gone that way. We want, we think privacy. Yeah. They were thinking the opposite. They want to see everybody. And the other thing they told us was, don't worry. When you see other people, you actually speak a little softer. Interesting. Uh, and when you're talking on the telephone. And when you don't, you assume nobody's listening, so you speak a little louder. And that was a big learning for hmm. us. And we made our decision uh, probably 80% based on, uh, on what they said. And you mentioned Nike a minute ago and alluded to other large brands and taking social stances. And you, I think, Keith, you said that's had mixed results. I'm curious, you know, as companies are trying to promote themselves to younger professionals to be appealing by taking a stand on a social issue or an environmental issue, are you seeing smaller companies in the middle market doing that too? Is, is this, you know, moving down market or is it still just the Starbucks of the world and, um, you know, other large brands that are taking these risks? I haven't seen the amount of of taking a stand that I, that I might expect given what's in the news. And I think there are probably a couple of reasons. One is I think smaller brands or middle market companies, they might think, well, we only have so much power to influence or the brand building that might occur is, is more limited compared to a, a, you know, a brand like Nike or, or something like sure. that. And I was just speaking to someone in the middle market company and he said, you know, you have to be very careful what you want to weigh in on because you might alienate half of your, your consumer base. Mm-hmm. So, so obviously you have to be careful about how, how you approach that. Um, surprisingly, I, I mentioned before energy companies, we, we've had you know a few clients in that space. And so having sustainability built into their strategy is something they promote because it's central to their business model mm-hmm. and, and the impact they want to have. So I think it really depends on the organization. Obviously, a number of organizations would be very happy to be very pro-environmental, for example, take Patagonia, right? Sure. They're literally trying to preserve national, you know. So I, I think it depends. But my, my experience has been that it's it's probably not as, as advanced as you might suspect, given the press that, you know, we're all aware of. The internal branding becomes even more important in a small mm. to mid-sized company. Mm. So you have to have people excited about that, uh, what, what, your, what the purpose of that, of that company is and something to rally around. And the communication, when you think about it, is just a little bit easier because you have fewer layers and, and a smaller number of people to deal with. So you can get them all in one room uh, or at least over a couple of meetings, talk to everybody and get the message across, which, which is an, uh, might be an advantage over a larger company. So internal brand becomes really important in yeah, those small to mid-sized companies. And we ran a story in our latest issue of Middle Market Growth Magazine exploring how some private equity firms and their portfolio companies are using their geographic location as a marketing tool for attracting talent. So, you know, in one example, um, quoted a, a company who had moved from Silicon Valley to Texas, you know, where cost of living was cheaper and, and trying to market that as a way of attracting people who maybe want to live in a lower cost, mid-sized city. Are you seeing that in, in the firms that you're working with? Not in private equity firms. Hmm. Private equity firms, 
yes, they need to attract the talent, but the talent that we're dealing with, some of the uh, more senior people, they may not even relocate because you're talking about moving mm-hmm. your family for a gig that's going to last uh, two to five um, years. Mm-hmm. So you don't see that too often. Now, they, they have to have employees too, and those pl- employees are, are probably going to move on with whatever is next. And of course, that's important. You need to think about it. What we do see, and I gave you the example of the firm that I work for that moved from the middle of Illinois to uh, Chicago for one reason only, and that is to be able to attract talent. It's almost a reverse of what I just described. Yeah. Yes. Well, I've seen seen that a lot in particular in in cities like Chicago. And, you know, our our mayor is sort of well-known for recruiting companies to create headquarters or locations downtown. You know, I can think mm-hmm. of 10 or 12 just amongst our, mm-hmm. our client base. Um, and then you look at, you know, you look at what's happening in the West Loop, you know, with all the organizations moving office space into there. And it's like a completely different planet than it was 10 years mm-hmm. ago, right? It feels very global, feels very young, feels, feels very cool. And even cosmetic changes like more bike lanes, for instance, right. seem like they also play a role in, hey, I'm a 31-year-old person who likes to bike to work. I care about the environment. Like, that is a good fit for me. Maybe Chicago is a good place for me to live, that type of... It gets down to uh, dress code and how the office is configured. And uh, the office looks more like... um, The modern office today looks more like a Starbucks than than it looks like at the office of the past with all kinds of private offices. Yeah, absolutely. Where it works... We experience with our clients what we're experiencing as a firm. You know, like we, we used to be a place where you were expected to come to the office. And now people just work remotely. And we see that more and more with our, with our clients where they're just, whether they have to fly to spend, you know, three or four days at headquarters or they're just going to be telecommuting. It's just so much more the norm now. And another topic that we've explored in the magazine is succession planning within middle market private equity firms. Um, you know, as their founders get older um, and without, you know, clear plans for who's going to step into those shoes and figuring out the economics, it looks like a lot of these firms are at risk of, of losing really talented people. Is that something that you're seeing your clients start to reckon with? Or are they taking that issue seriously? Succession planning is a, has been a pretty hot topic you know, in portfolio companies, for example, or mm-hmm. with all of our, our clients, right? But I think it's becoming um, much more um, of a hot topic in PE firms themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, you're dealing with the issues of founders needing to create um, succession and new investors want to understand, you know, what's the business continuity plan or how's this going to uh, continue further. I think one of the topics that uh, I'm aware of, and, and Bob, you may know better than this, is creating a glide path for people to exit in a way that doesn't put the firm at risk. So, in other words, is it what, what's the timeline? Is it one or two years or eight years? Because there's always that sort of risk of a middle space where a few people might leave and start another firm, yeah, right? And they have all the all the knowledge and understanding, yeah. access to markets to do that. Definitely, mm-hmm. Keith. The, uh, the the whoever the buyer is of a private equity firm, and eventually it's going to be sold, needs to be thinking about talent. And, and uh, usually the most important part of the transition is not the product it's the, uh, or the service, it's the actual talent. Mm-hmm. And you need to create a plan that makes the buyer comfortable that you've got that under control. And in some cases, that's extending contracts to some of those people so that they, so they do have that. They're, they're around for the transition plus a couple of years. And, and even beyond that, 
the buyer, especially if it's a strategic buyer, may look backwards and say, okay, not only who are the leaders of this company, but who are the people behind that that are going to be the next leaders of the company. So you need to think about it, whether it's private equity or a, a, a regular corporate firm. Well, Bob and Keith, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help listeners find out about us. After you've rated the podcast, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and middle market M&A.